Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this good Sunday morning. Father, we thank you that we're here even after an awesome Saturday night in Louisville with thunder over Louisville. We thank you, God, that we can gather here with other people to worship. You are our King, our Savior who has died for our sins and been raised from the grave in victory. And God, we're here today to worship you as that. We thank you, God, that you have revealed this to us. We ask that today that you would uh, increase our faith. Make us strong believers of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, turn in the Bible to Mark chapter 10. We're going to pick up right where we left off. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's page 931 in the Pew Bible. Page 931 in the Pew Bible, Mark chapter 10. And we're going to go right from where we were last week with Easter and the resurrection. It just so happened that there in Mark chapter 10, Jesus uh, is telling them yet again that he must die and that he would rise again. It's fascinating that the greatest event in the history of the world, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, was predicted so many times. And yet, because of our sinful natures and because of our hard, sinful dead hearts, we do not believe it until God causes us to believe it. You see it so clearly here. Well, right after that, from last week, you have this passage that comes up, and and Austin just read it from the account in Matthew, that is uh, peculiar, fascinating, heavy, perplexing, It's a request from the the two sons of thunder, James and John. It's a passage on greatness, it's a passage on humility, and it's a passage on pride. But the way we understand it through this uh, situation here of them approaching Jesus is strange that they would still be thinking this way. The pride of these men, these faithful followers of Jesus, comes out, and I want it to be a challenge to us today. When you're in school, and you get to the end of high school, they they do something at most schools, I think they probably did at yours, called senior superlatives. Do y'all know what those are? It's when they kind of ask the student body, and they give out... um, I guess like awards, or probably not awards, but more like a recognition for what you are the best at, or what you are the most at. So uh, in the yearbook of your senior year, they'll have all these senior, senior superlatives, and it'll be the smartest, and it will be the nicest, and it'll be the most likely to uh, be a doctor, most likely to be the next millionaire, those type of things. Those are what senior superlatives are. Well, when I, I went to a public school, and so they didn't have this one, but I did, I did end up at a Christian college, and they did these as well. And one of the superlatives they had at our Christian college was most Christ-like. We always laughed a lot at that one. Because what are you looking for in somebody to identify them as the most of that? Are they putting it out there? Do they brag about how many people they've led to Jesus or how much money they've given or how many Bible verses they know or do they pray the loudest or sing the loudest? Are they on stage the most? What, what is it about them that causes you uh, to think they are the most like Jesus? And we always laughed about it. And I remember in college, one of my good buddies, he was even a roommate of mine, great guy, his name is Chris Carter. He's actually now a missionary in Asia, super guy. He got it. And I remember him in all humility saying, that's not good. If everybody sees me as being very Christ-like, then that's probably a sign that I'm not as Christ-like. 
Jesus teaches so many times to do things so that people don't see them. Don't, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. When you pray, go into the closet and pray, right? And we're not the ones who toot our own horns is how Jesus lived his life. Nobody, listen, nobody thought that Jesus was the greatest thing on earth. They were perplexed and fascinated by his, his brilliance and his teaching and all that. But nobody thought that this guy's the greatest, and so when we start giving out an award that says most Christ-like, it is somewhat comical to think, well, what, what is it that you're seeing in that person that makes that? Are they the most visible? And y'all know what I'm getting at. Well, it's a passage like today with this request from James and John that will, will be a reminder to you again of the true Christ and therefore the true Christ follower. Church, we are to be a humble, lowly, servant people. You need to, if you want to follow Jesus, get over yourself. And this passage will remind us that once again. Read with me at Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus blew them away with this. You may not be blown away by it right now because you've heard it before but we struggle with it, but you have heard it before. They were blown away by this, and they had heard it before. They had been warned and warned and warned by Jesus that the way of God is a humble, selfless way. That's the way it's going to happen. Jesus is going to come into his kingdom through suffering, through difficulty, through hardship. That's going to happen. And he has told them this many, many, many times, and they don't get it. Look with me. Go back to last week's passage, chapter 10, verse 34. The end of verse 33. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Listen to this. And they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. That's what he just told them. He just told them that. And then you have James and John walking up asking what they just asked. They still are not thinking in the right mind. So he just told them that in chapter 10. We'll turn back to chapter 9, verse 31. 9.31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. They had forgotten him. Go back another chapter, 831. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Verse 32, and he said this plainly. Now, for those of y'all that, never, that have never seen all that put together before, uh, aren't you 
interested right now to see how much Jesus talked about his death and his resurrection? Y'all seeing that? 831, 931, 1034, three straight chapters where Jesus talked about his death and talked about his resurrection. You see that? It's good, isn't it? The Bible is easy to read at some places. Okay? So he had been telling them this. He had been telling them this and telling them this and telling them this. And for as much as they were uh, committed to Jesus and wanted to follow him and they were devoted to him, as much as they had that about them, they didn't have it fully understood. They didn't understand well. They, They still didn't get it. They still wanted it to make them have some status. And sometimes, I hate to admit it, we want God and godliness to give us some status too, don't we? Their problem is a similar problem that you and I deal with. We think highly of ourselves because we are Christian or supposedly doing things the right way. And when we start thinking highly of ourselves, then we start thinking lowly of others. And this was their problem. Jesus had been telling them his way, his way of death, his way of of persecution, his way of them coming against him. Jesus had been telling them this, and it had gotten to the point where they didn't even want to talk about it. Notice here at chapter 8, verse 32, and you remember me preaching on this. After he said this to them plainly, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. And that's when Jesus had to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So you remember that. The apostles had gotten to where they didn't even want to talk about it. They didn't want Jesus bringing up the, the death, the, the burial, the, the resurrection. They didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to hear about him being turned over to be condemned. They didn't want to hear about it. They just wanted to hear about the the Christianity that was a kind of self-promotion type, one that was making them better. And I know that it's pretty common, but we still hear people all the time say, you know, I got to just start doing what's best for me. I got to start looking out for me. I got to start taking care of me. And we start to look for a way that God or Jesus might make us better and in doing that we forget God's humble self-denying way our passage begins if you look at 1035 with these two brothers James and John the sons of Zebedee they came up to Jesus and they asked him a question Now, I want to remind you who this James and John is. The sons of Zebedee. This is the sons of thunder. These are the brothers. You remember when Jesus called the disciples right there beside the Sea of Galilee, right? You know that famous passage where he called Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and he said, you'll no longer be uh, catching fish. I'm going to make you fishers of men. You know that passage in Matthew chapter 4? These two brothers were there. They were two of the first four disciples that Jesus called. They were fishermen. Matthew chapter 20 that we just read lets us know that their mother was involved too. Mark says they're the ones making this request. Matthew says their mother was the one making the request. It was a family deal. They were all there together. But I want to remind you they're grown men. Part of raising children, folks, is getting our kids to do things without us. And the older our kids get and that they still need us to do things, then we've got problems. If you're walking up to Jesus and making a request to him and you need your mama to help you with it, then something isn't right there, okay? And we can go on and on about doing homework or making a sandwich or mowing the grass or doing the laundry or making your bed or this or that or carrying in groceries. We can go on and on. But if, if, if the young people today uh, aren't being taught by the parents today to do some things with some independence without mom doing it, then we've got a problem, now, this passage isn't all about that, so I don't want to spend too much time there. But here's what I'm saying. Moms, stop treating your kids like little babies. Teach them to be independent. Teach them to work out their problems. Teach them to uh, make a decision and work through something and find a solution and find another angle, as they said in Big Hero 6, right? Find a way to do better at this. Find a way to work it out. Find a way to push through it. We don't need mama defending us all the time. Here we have grown men, apostles, if you will, at the Jesus, talking to him about his sitting on the throne and mama's getting involved. It just doesn't seem right. 
But that's from Matthew. It's not here in Mark. So they came up to Jesus and they said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That just sounds weird, doesn't it? That sounds self-centered, self-absorbed. It sounds like all they're thinking about is, is themselves. They're not even thinking about what, all that Jesus is about to go through, right? He's been telling them, I'm going to be condemned, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be spit on, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be crucified, they're going to kill me. That's what he's been talking about. They say, well, we've got a request. Can you do it? But you see how they go about it? They go about it like our toddlers do. They want Jesus to tell them the answer before they make the request. And we're like that. A lot of times Carolina will come up to me and say, Daddy, can I do something? And I'll say, well, what is it? She said, well, you tell me yes first. You tell me yes, you tell me yes to it, and then I'll tell you what it is, right? That's a bad formula, bad situation to be in. You can't ever say yes to that, right? This is what they're doing. I mean, how, how childish, how immature can this request be? Jesus We've got a request. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's immature. It's, it's, it's misguided. These guys are way off, and they, they shouldn't be that, that far off. Verse 36, Jesus answers and says to them, what do you want me to do for you? So he doesn't answer. He says, okay, what, what is it? In verse 37, they make the most prideful Selfish request. They said, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. They just asked the king that when he reigns in his kingdom, can they be right there? When the press conference happens, Jesus, and all eyes are on you, you know how you can kind of see the two people sitting in the background? We want to be those. When you start getting all the FaceTime, can we be right there? What a request. Why? Why did they want that? There can be no answer other than they wanted to be something. They wanted to be special. They wanted to feel special. And I know that my heart and your heart pulls to want to feel special at times. And I know that my heart and your heart really, really pulls to want our children to feel special sometimes. I know that it does. But church, listen to me. The way of wanting to feel special never, ever satisfies. Satisfaction comes from being close to God and knowing that you know God, knowing that you're right with God, knowing that you're in the will of God. Wanting to be special and getting that special will leave you just as empty after you have it, possibly even more so than before you got it. And some of y'all have had the opportunity to experience that. Feeling right about yourself or feeling fulfilled on the inside doesn't come from you having something special about you. It doesn't. These guys didn't get this. They wanted to. I titled this sermon, The Seated Servant Savior, because in this passage we see all three of those as descriptions of Jesus. The first one is seated. They are aware that Jesus is the king. They're aware that he is on his way to bring in the kingdom of God and for him to sit on the throne. Listen to me. God is God. There's only one God, and he has a kingdom. And he tells us in John chapter 16 that God's kingdom is not of this world. Okay? It's not of this world. And God's kingdom one day is going to be set up and established in its fullness. Right now, it's an already not yet kingdom. So we've got the kingdom because Jesus the king does reign over people, but, and, and, and there is a heaven, but he hasn't fully set that up yet. So we know about the kingdom, and we are experiencing parts of the kingdom, but we don't have the big, full, finished kingdom set up yet. And they know this. They know that this is the king, and we know that one day he's going to sit on his throne. Now, they don't understand it fully, but they know that. And so instead of being in awe of him and who he is and bowing down at his feet and wanting their lives to be wrapped up in living for his honor and being content and, and, and fulfilled at knowing that they're living for the honor of the king, instead of that, they're thinking about how they can get some status, how they can get some position in the kingdom. Jesus is a seated king because Jesus has a throne. But these guys are full of pride. I told you that this passage is about 
pride and about humility. And I want you to see here that these guys, these guys' problem is that they're prideful. In the light of Jesus and who he is, they're thinking about themselves. Can you be humble enough here today to, to admit that there are often times where you ought not to be thinking about yourself and you are thinking about yourself? This is these guys' problem. I want to read to you some scriptures from the Bible on pride. Listen to how bad this problem is. There are many who say that pride is the very root of all sin and evil in our wicked hearts. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate pride. Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 21.4, a proud heart is sin. It is sin. Let's go to the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, 30, verse 30 says, Pride is an element of the reprobate mind. 1 Timothy 3, 6, pride comes from the devil. 1 John 2, 16, pride is a characteristic of the world. 1 Timothy 6, 3, pride is a mark of false teachers. James 4, 6, pride alienates one from God because God resists the proud. God hates pride. God hates for us to be thinking, me, me, me. This is why I think we struggle so much in our society at being able to ultimately help people. The best the world knows how to do is to call somebody who's too high on themselves or too low on themselves is to think more about themselves. Every Christian bookstore has a huge section called self-help. Every bookstore has a section called self-help. The reason why we're not very good at helping people, even though there are tons and tons of efforts in the world to help people, is because we think helping people is getting them to look more at themselves. That's not the answer. The answer is not to look more at yourself. The answer is to look at Jesus. And as long as you are telling people to look at themselves, you will never help them. And as long as people will not look at Jesus, listen to me, they will never find help. James and John are so misguided here with this request. They go to Jesus. They know that he will be the seated king, and they ask, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Now, it's a good question to ask about how much are they even understanding right now? Are they meaning like in his, in his heavenly kingdom that you and I are thinking about? Are they meaning like in heaven when he truly sits on the throne like a Revelation chapter 5 picture when everybody's gathered around him? Is that what they're talking about? Are they not on to that yet? Are they talking about a, a worldly kingdom? They think he's about to come set up here right there in Jerusalem. Hard to tell. But either way, when Christ is exalted and when all eyes are on him as king, they want to be right there. They are selfish and they are prideful as they talk to the seated king. But let me tell you something else that's happening in our selfishness that perhaps you've not even considered. And we'll talk about it more. Do you know what's happening as they are promoting themselves? They're also elevating themselves above the other ten, aren't they? It's not even on their radar. Listen, it's not even on their radar. What about those guys? Wouldn't the way of Christ, listen, wouldn't the way of Christ be that James and John should have gone and said, hey, listen, Peter and Andrew really are the most Christ-like. Jesus, when you get in your kingdom, we don't know who's going to get to sit beside you, but if you do get to ask somebody, how about those guys? Doesn't the Bible teach us 
that we are to see ourselves as less important than everybody else? Doesn't the Bible teach us at the very heart of, we talked about this last week, to love our neighbor as ourselves? These guys had not even considered what them promoting themselves said about the other ten. Where's the attitude that Jesus brings on, which we just talked about this, and I thought it was absolutely fascinating, that on, on, on Good Friday, as Jesus is having the last, the last supper, actually it was Thursday night, as Jesus is having the last supper with his disciples, and the Bible teaches us in John chapter 13 that Jesus now knew that his hour had come for him to depart out of this world and go to the Father. It says that in John chapter 13, which in other words means that Jesus knows this is his very last time on earth he's about to die and be gone he knew that and it raises the question I taught this at a Friday Bible study just two weeks ago and I said to them if you knew it was your very very last night how would you spend it if you knew that tomorrow you're dying and Sunday night this Sunday night was your very last night how would you spend it and I know without you even saying it that it would be all types of outlandish things some of y'all would watch a movie and some of y'all would go swimming in the high river and some of y'all would go skydiving and some of y'all would go uh, um, uh, um, bungee jumping and some of y'all would do the craziest things that you could think of it's your final night you know what Jesus did? It says he got up from dinner took off his outer clothes put a towel around his waist and started washing the disciples' feet. The lowest thing a servant could do. Your thought on your last night would be, live it up. For once in my life, I'm just going to focus on me, right? And how many times do we hear people say that? I mean, I just need a day for me, right? And we all talk like that. It's not God's way. Jesus is very last night. You'd have thought he'd have went outside and maybe exercised some of that power and just showed some people how awesome he was or put some of those punks in their place or something like that. No, he washed their feet. You know who one of them was that he washed his feet? Judas. Who the next day would betray him with a kiss for the love of money. Washed his feet. John 13, he says that he loved them to the end. This seated Savior, this seated Savior is a servant. This king of ours, y'all, is a servant. Verse 38 tells us, Jesus answers their request by saying, you do not know what you are asking. They didn't. So then he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus asked them a question. Jesus says, do you understand what it's going to take for me to get there seated on the throne? And they didn't understand that. He said that you don't, you don't know what you're asking. You and I know that he's about to go through all of that. He's going to be crucified on the cross, absolutely humiliated. God's going to turn his back on his son. He's going to die. He's going to be buried. We know that he's about to go through all of that. And after all of that, the finished work of God, you remember on the cross when he cried out, it is finished. After he finishes the work of God, he then will eventually take his seat on the throne as the king of kings and lord of lords. He will. But it's not until after he does all that it's not until after he goes through all of that and so he asks them you don't know what you're asking are you able to drink the cup or to be baptized you know what he means when he says that he's not talking about baptism baptism means to be totally immersed let me let me let me, let me help you let me remind you all of that Y'all, baptism means to be totally immersed. That's why if you've been sprinkled or something like that, we say, in all, in all fairness, that that's not a, a legitimate baptism. In baptism, you have to go under the water. And that's not all, but that's part of what makes us Baptists. We believe that Jesus is baptism that the Bible teaches is an under the water. So baptism means to be immersed under, completely immersed. Drinking the cup is consistent throughout the Bible means taking on the judgment, taking on the wrath, taking the punishment. Do you remember in Matthew 26 when Jesus was praying in the garden and he says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, 
Not my will be done, but yours be done. You remember that? Remember when he prayed that? Let this cup pass from me. He's talking about going through all that he's about to go through. And he's saying, uh, if, if there's any other way, God, then, then let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do it. But nevertheless, what you want, God, is what I want. So drinking the cup in the Bible is taking the punishment, taking the judgment, taking the wrath of God, and being baptized in it means fully drinking it, fully being immersed in it. So giving of his life, dying for us that has to happen before he sits on the throne and so their request is a really really misguided request in other words what they're saying they don't understand what they're saying he already told them that in other words what they're saying is we want to be on the level that you're on jesus and there's no way they can get there but they don't understand they don't understand that so much so that they don't understand that. In verse 39, they answer him by saying, we're able. Yep. Folks, that should hurt your heart. That should dig you at their pride. Drinking the cup of the wrath of God. What can only be done by the Holy Son of God for us. They just said, yeah, we'll do that too. This is ugly, ugly pride. This is arrogance, arrogance, arrogance. Now, they don't realize they're being arrogant, but we do. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. You're not able to drink the cup. You're not able to be baptized with what I'm about to go through. You don't know what I'm about to go through. And he's already told them, I showed you chapter 10, chapter 9, chapter 8, that he's telling them what he's about to go through, but they don't get it yet. They've not wanted to think about that. And now, here they are, and they say, yeah, we're able. Folks, listen. If you don't know what you're talking about, don't say it. If you don't know what you're talking about, stop talking. If you're promoting yourself, stop. They just told Jesus that they're able to go through what he's about to go through. Stop. Stop it, James and John. So Jesus answers again and says to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with, which, with, with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So Jesus now comes back and says, Well, you are about to go through it. Actually, you are about to go through it, not on the level that I'm about to go through it, not for the same reason that I'm about to go through it, but you are about to go through it. But going through it as a way of getting to sitting on the throne where I'm sitting, that is not what you're going for. That's not the purpose of what you're going for. As a matter of fact, I'm not even the one that determines that. My Father will determine that. Where we are in the kingdom, I don't know. Whether people will actually sit at his right and at his left, folks, I, I don't know. That's interesting, isn't it? When we get to heaven, will there be two seats beside the throne and who will sit there? Is there such a thing of two of the greatest saints? If we were to throw out somebody like Paul, he's the one who said, I count all things as loss. Paul, Paul doesn't want to. He calls himself the chief of sinners. Doesn't it sound like he's, he's lobbying to be able to get the best seat? Who would sit there? Will there be two seats? Will there be ten? Will there be a hundred seats? Who will sit there? Will it be the martyrs that are seated there? I, I don't know. We don't know that. Jesus says, who determines who sits there, he, he's not in control of. God the Father does that. They should not be worrying about their status in the kingdom. They shouldn't be. You should be worried about exalting the king. Don't worry about your status in the kingdom. Worry about your worship of the king. But he did say to them, you notice... Well, you will drink the cup and you will do the baptism. Do you see that? They're going to go through it, right? You know what happened to the apostles in the book of Acts, right? You know that the apostles, once the Holy Spirit came upon them in Acts chapter 2, once they were led by the, by the firepower driven spirit power, they lived boldly and unashamedly for Jesus. You remember that, right? And you remember what happened to them. This James right here, Acts chapter 12, listen to me. The first of the apostles martyred. Do you remember in Acts chapter 12 when they killed him? 
Acts chapter 12, James the son of Zebedee was the first apostle to be martyred, killed for the cause of Christ. Do you remember what happened to this John? The last of the apostles to be martyred. Instead of a quick sword that killed him like James, John was exiled to the island of Patmos from which God revealed to him the book of Revelation, left there to suffer and die in isolation. They sure would drink the cup, and they sure would be baptized as a faithful witness to this seated servant Savior. But not as a way or a means of getting to sit on the throne but because that's the faithful calling that God had called them to and that God would be a witness to the world through them. Look down at verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And I'm not really sure, and I'm not sure what you think either, I'm not really sure what's worse about this. Are they mad at them because their friends are being so ungodly? Are they mad at them because they think their friends are getting a leg up on them in self-promotion? How about you? When jealousy comes up, when jealousy comes up in you, are you able to say, I'm I'm happy for them? Are you able to celebrate when somebody else is doing well? Are you able to be content when somebody else is chosen over you? Romans chapter 12, which we've been studying in the middle of the week, says rejoice with those who rejoice. If something good happens to me that doesn't happen to you, are you happy for me? Something good happens to somebody else, but it didn't happen to you, are you happy for them? Or do you get indignant like them and say, well, why not me? Why why didn't you ask me? Or why didn't you choose me? Or what about me? Or what about me? I never get to. I'm, I'm sure I'm better than the Omer. Is that the way you think? Listen to this outstanding quote from J.C. Ryle. He says, Blessed is that man or woman who can sincerely rejoice when others are exalted, though he himself is overlooked and passed by. Why were the other ten so upset here? What were they upset about, actually? Well, perhaps they were upset because James and John were were being prideful and arrogant, but I don't think so. I think they're, they're more so upset because they think now they're getting closer to Jesus. Which, that's not right. You shouldn't be thinking that way. They're, 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 it sounds like they're thinking that they wish that they had been the ones who had thought of this. They wish they had been the first ones there. This is not right. This isn't a situation where you want to be first or try to earn that status. There's a game the kids like to play in basketball called Knockout. And it's a fun game. You don't have to be good at basketball. You just take everybody that's there. It can be five people or ten people or 50 people. And you take two basketballs and you all line up at the foul line and you shoot. And if the person after you makes it before you make it, then you're out. Real simple game, right? Really, really simple game. But when kids aren't thinking right and you say we're going to play Knockout, they'll go fight to be first in line. Well, in knockout, the worst spot to be is first. I mean, it's the absolute worst spot to be because it means the second shooter has the ball already and they're going to shoot as soon as that person shoots it. It would be best to be last in knockout. But kids don't think about that. James and John here have gone to Jesus and said, can we sit beside you in the kingdom? And the other ten are upset about that. In chapter 8, listen to me. Jesus said this in verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake And the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? They had forgotten that he said that, hadn't they? And we're just a couple chapters later, and we've got the two and the ten. We've got the twelve kind of arguing, if you will, arguing over who's great. Turn with me real quick to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. 
Look at verse 14. This is the very, very end of Jesus' life. Starting at verse 3, Judas is about to betray Jesus. Jesus is now having the Passover. Starting at verse 14 of 22, we have Jesus having the Last Supper with them, okay? This is the setting. It's the Thursday night of the Passion Week, okay? Look at verse 24. While they're having the Last Supper with Jesus, look at verse 24 of chapter 22. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Do y'all see that? These disciples. Jesus is literally hours away from crucifixion. And the twelve are arguing over who's greater. Now back at Mark chapter 10, verse 41, when the ten heard it, they they began to be indignant at James and John. Verse 42, and Jesus called them to him and said this to them. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. This seated Savior is also the servant Savior. Greatness to Jesus is being a humble, lowly servant. I read to you some verses on pride. Let me read to you now some verses in the Bible on how God not hates pride, but hear how he prizes humility, how he gives grace to those who are humble. James 4, 6 says that God gives grace to the humble. Humility is a virtue which God honors. Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? Psalm 138, verse 6, though the Lord is high, yet God has respect for the humble. Isaiah 66, 2, to this man I will look, even to him who is poor, contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. These are evidences of true humility. Psalm 10, 17, the Lord hears the desire of the humble. Proverbs 15, 33, before honor is humility. God has a different way of talking about greatness. John MacArthur looks at this passage and says, Jesus lays out for us two ways of life. There is the self-promotion of the world and the self-denial of the kingdom. John MacArthur goes on to say that, think about this, he says, in the world, self-promotion works. Self-promotion works in the world. If you want to climb the ladder, if you want to uh, throw out your elbows and, and jostle for position or lobby to make yourself great, if you want to start a campaign about how great you are and you want to retweet all your tweets and repost all your posts and brag about you and bring attention to you and, and draw fame for you, if you want to do that, you can. And it will give you more and more status in this world. John MacArthur says, according to Jesus, self-promotion doesn't work in the kingdom. It goes against the grain of the kingdom of God. God's way is the selfless way. God's way is the denial way. God's way is to be great as John the Baptist is and to say, I must become less. I need less of me, John the Baptist says. It's to say things like, I'm not worthy to untie his shoes, like John the Baptist said. And Jesus himself said that there is not a man greater born of women than John. And that's how John spoke about himself. We don't have any passages of John patting himself on the back. We don't have any passages of John telling us how great he is. We do have passages of John telling us how problematic he was and how unworthy he was and how he needed to be less. We do have those. The way of the world works by self-promotion. The way of the kingdom works by self-denial. And you need to know that distinction. What are you living for? 
I think this is so absolutely crucial and critical when we think about a church. What is it about a church that causes people to want to be a part of us? What is it about us that causes people to want to come here or want to have what we have? And this same idea of self-promotion, y'all, is not the answer. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the glory of the gospel, one of my favorite quotes, is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is not in us being big, better, best, good, better, best, that everybody wants to be like us. It's when we are Christ-like that God draws people to Christ. Did you hear me? It's not when we're the best or the biggest or the brightest when all of a sudden God starts working through us. It's when we are the most Christ-like that God starts drawing people to Christ. James and John have come with this bad request And Jesus tells them, it's almost like he draws them in, and he says, hey, y'all are familiar with the way the lording Gentiles reign over people. We're familiar with this too. We're familiar with authority or leadership or teachers or coaches that say, hey, it's my way or the highway. We're here with, we're familiar with people who say, you do it because I said so. I'm the boss, right? We're familiar with people who can give command and people have to listen whether it's right or not, whether it's good or not. We're familiar with that. And Jesus says, you need to underline this in your Bible, verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. If we want to be a church in this community that is reaching people, then every single one of us needs to put the towel around our waist, get on our knees, and see every single person as bigger than us, more important than us, and see ourselves as less. That's what greatness is. And you look around the world, listen to me, I know I make this point all the time, and they're telling us that churches are dying by the hundreds every single week. Churches are closing by the hundreds in America because people are sitting inside of a church saying, nobody wants to go to church anymore. And neither do I want to go to church with people who act like that. But Jesus says that you should be the slave of all. So why are the people who call themselves the church not outside being the slave of all? And don't try to like be candy-coating this word slave. It means just what you think it means. It means that I have given up all of my rights and all of my worth to the king of kings and made myself a slave of all. I hear stories of people who don't tip because a server or a waitress messed up a few times. Well, remind yourself that you're supposed to be the slave of all, and when you go into that restaurant, you're the servant, not them. Regardless of how good or bad they've been as a server, you're the servant. Regardless of how good or bad somebody's doing their job at at, at your work, you're the servant. You're the slave. We are the ones here to make the situation better regardless of what it looks like. Wherever we got this notion that if somebody gives us the opportunity to have an attitude and make a fit in front of somebody is not Christianity. We are to be the slaves of all. That's what greatness is. And you need to hear verse 43 that says, it shall not be so among you. And it is just as obvious as obvious can be that part of the reason why Christians and churches everywhere are dying is because there's a watching world going, I don't want anything to do with that and we are so far away from being the slave of all like Jesus tells us Jesus is a servant Ryle says let them never forget that true greatness does not consist in being an admiral or a general a statesman or an artist it consists listen to this in devoting ourselves our body our soul and spirit to the blessed work of making listen to this of making our fellow men more holy and more happy It is those who exert themselves by the use of Scripture means to lessen the sorrow and increase the joy of all those around them. Those who are truly great in the sight of God whose desire is to make the people around them more holy and more happy. Jesus was seated. Yes, he's the king. Jesus was servant. He's teaching them what greatness is. 
but he ultimately is the Savior. Look at verse 45. As the ultimate, ultimate example. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. While they were arguing about what they could get, Jesus had his eyes focused on how he could give. While they were focused on what attention or seat they could get, Jesus was focused on the life he could give. And having a name tag or having a title or having a seat beside the throne, listen to me, makes no impact at all. But giving of yourself makes great impact. And Christ gave himself, his life, as a ransom for many. Y'all, this is what this means. Yes, he's seated, he's the king. Yes, he's servant, and that's how he describes greatness. But yes, he is the savior. But in order for Christ to be the savior, he had to do the ransoming work. Here's what it means, that there was a, there was a debt, there was a problem, there was a bondage that, that people who are in sin, people who have sin, people who are caught up in sin are separated from God and Jesus dying as the holy son of God and suffering the punishment of a holy, wrathful God. Jesus paid to God the ransom that was due in order to set us free. We are only free and we are only saved by the Savior when we understand that Christ and what he's done for us is what it took. And so our faith must rest fully in Jesus, who he is and what he's done. But what is so beautiful about Christianity that no other way of thought even touches is that the Savior that gave his life as ransom is also the best servant. The king who's the highest is the servant who is the lowest. Nothing else on earth comes close to touching those two thoughts. And we have them both in the same person, our Savior. Whether it be our church in the community or whether it be you in your home, pointing people to Jesus comes from us being great. But not great the way the world says great. Great the way God says great. May we humble ourselves, be the slaves of all, And may God draw many to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we want to make the world better. We want to make our homes better. We want to make our neighborhoods better, Father. We are often so misguided. Well-intended, but misguided, Father. We need to understand greatness. We ask today, God, that you would renew our hearts and our minds and refresh our faith, that we would be trusting in Jesus, and not only in Jesus, but in Jesus' way, Jesus' way of greatness, Jesus' way of servanthood. Father, we ask that you would do that. And God, for all of the pride that is inside of us, we pray that you would convict us of that sin and lead us to repentance, and that we would be forgiven. Oh, Father, now lead us Lead us to respond to you and your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen.